Does what you choose to wear under your riding suit have any bearing on the protection the suit offers you? We're going to dig into that today. As well, the KLR 650 is dead, or at least it looks that way. We're going to take a look at the KLR 650's place in the adventure motorcycle world and come up with some ideas of what may be ahead next, if anything, for Kawasaki's legendary dual sport motorcycle. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free and I highly recommend it. That's www.maxbmw.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lamphere. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Google Tech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, now think about it. What considerations do you take into account when planning what to wear under your riding jacket and pants? And does that choice affect the overall protection you gain from that gear to begin with, your protective gear? Now, many riders like to adhere to the ATGAT thought process. ATGAT is, of course, an acronym for all the gear, all the time. ATGAT. But when the weather gets hot, it's common to see riders wearing outdoor style pants, um, some sort of light pants, even shorts and a t-shirt under their protective riding gear. Now, the question is, does that layer of clothing you wear under your protective riding gear have any effect on the protection you gain from the riding suit to begin with? In other words, by choosing to wear thin, breathable clothing or shorts and a t-shirt underneath your riding suit, are you actually reducing the safety margin that suit gives you? To have a chat about this today, I'm going to speak with Walt Fulton from Streetmasters Motorcycle Workshops. Walt is well known in the motorcycle industry. He's a former three-time winner at Daytona. He's been a team racer for Kawasaki, Suzuki, and Harley-Davidson. He is a motorcycle accident reconstruction expert and was also one of the riders featured on the famous motorcycle movie On Any Sunday. 
Walt is um, a journalist as well. He's been an editor for Motorcyclist Magazine, Cycle World, Cycle Guide. He now has a regular column for Motorcycle Consumer News. And of course, in his spare time, he's got a full-time job. He works at Kawasaki USA as a product specialist. And between his time on the track and on the road, Walt's logged over a million miles on his motorcycle. Walt, welcome back to Venture Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Now, you have been a, a motorcycle racer. You've ridden for many, many years. You're a regular rider. You work in the motorcycle industry. You have a company where you teach people how to ride and, and you teach advanced skills. When it comes to our protective clothing, like our pants and our jacket, we often have a conversation that starts on the outside with those layers and sort of diminishes at that point, doesn't get any deeper. Now, now let me just, just bear with me here and let me run through my thought process on this. We, we go out and we buy our protective gear, our pants, uh, our jacket, and the protection uh, is usually sort of twofold. It's one from the weather, which is very important. Maybe it's to keep us cool. Maybe it's to keep us warm. Quite often nowadays, it's textile. So, so let's sort of consider we're talking about textile. And then um, on the inside, it's usually some padding in, in strategic locations like the knees, the hips, the elbows, shoulders, ideally the back, uh, the spine. That's our outer clothing that we feel is our protection. And But when you talk about underclothing, usually the conversation immediately goes to what I wear to keep cool or what I wear to keep warm. But there doesn't seem to be much thought process into does that underclothing have any sort of bearing on the protection that we get if we were to have a get-off and need the protection that we have from our outer clothing? Well, I... I I think right off the bat, the, the fallacy is that if I if I get a good quality riding outfit, that I am protected, and uh, I am I, not so sure that that's absolutely true. Uh, I have had people that I know, and I've seen the results of get-offs. Um, they and it, and it's dependent upon speed. I mean, if you throw yourself down at, at at 70 miles an hour uh, or more, it's kind of unlikely that a textile a suit alone is going to uh, leave you unscathed. Um, at least that's been the experience I've seen. I've never experienced it myself, let me put it that way, uh, and be perfectly clear on that, but I have seen a lot of other people that have. and. Um, you know, if you're talking in the realm of 40, 50 miles an hour, uh, that might most gear may hold up at that uh, at that speed. But again, it's it, it's really dependent upon the quality of the gear and the quality of not just the gear, but on all the the impact points like knees, elbows, shoulders, um, hips, and things like that. So, whatever gear you you buy. I think you would probably be better protected and better prepared if you actually take all of if there if it's a cheap or low cost outfit, take all the pads out and actually replace them with decent, honest to goodness quality padding. 
Well, okay. So, I mean, we, I guess we should be really clear about that because really, um, I want to talk about uh, even just the standards for it. When we talk about protective clothing, it's, it is sort of a shot in the dark. As you say, there's so many variables there. Obviously, if we hit something on a get-off, that's a totally different thing. Absolutely. And protective clothing is going to do nothing or very, very yeah. little for you. But even, even scraping down the road, clothing doesn't last very long. If you look at some of the tests, and by the way, there are no tests that I know of. Or there's no testing and no uh, standards for North America as far as protective clothing goes for motorcycling. But if you look at some of the standards and the testing that's done in Europe, fabric doesn't last very long. I mean, we're talking, you know, three feet sort of thing before stuff starts to come apart. So the thought of, yeah, I, exactly. I could get off at 50, 50 mile an hour, you know, I mean, the, the thought that something, anything is going to hold together is kind of crazy. Well, like I say, if you if you want something to hold together, you, you have only one real choice, and that's a pair of leathers. And of course, there you're talking in the neighborhood of a, you know, anywhere from the the low end stuff at five six hundred bucks for a for a one set well, one piece pair of leathers, or a um, uh, up to uh, fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars maybe if you know if you get all the bells and whistles. I mean, that's not too far out of line though, because that's the people are paying that for textile jackets. Well, I never have, but I. But you're absolutely right. I I see some of these manufacturers, and and that's what I, one of my pet peeves, and one one of the reasons that pe- more people don't wear decent gear, I think, is that, you know, you, you you're looking at six hundred to eight hundred dollars for a helmet. You're looking at a thousand dollars for a jacket, a thousand dollars for a pair of pants, five hundred dollars for a boot, uh, two to three hundred dollars for a pair of gloves. And man, that's a lot of uh, moolah. In particular, for new riders, you know, as a new rider looks at this and and, and says, "Oh man, this is <laughs> this is ridiculous." Oh, it is, it is. Uh, but uh, and 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 I, I think the interesting thing is that, and you pointed this out that, that what testing has been done. I I'd really like to see a thousand dollar jacket thrown down the road with a you know fitted to a, a dummy. And then a, another a lower price jacket, say in the neighborhood of, um, I don't know, 150 to 200 dollars, and let's see how they they actually compare. Well, and I've seen that in the European testing before too, where the expensive yeah. jacket has the seams burst much quicker than what a, a less expensive jacket is. So price isn't always um, isn't always telling you which one's going to give you the most protection. But quite Absolutely. often, what you're paying for is there are things like Gore-Tex and, and design and things like that, rather sure. than the protection itself. So in other words, when we talk about what's uh, what we're wearing underneath, let's just say we have whatever protective clothing um, we've decided to buy. Does what we wear underneath that, does it not sort of add or take away from our protection? I mean, think about it. You go down the road and we were just talking about this stuff isn't going to last all that long in most conditions before it falls apart or gets or shredded to bits. Wouldn't it make sense that we need something underneath it? Or, or at least if we like, because we could talk about heavy jeans, you could wear heavy jeans underneath or shorts. A lot of people wear shorts, you know, or outdoor pants. Are you not giving up some protection? Are you not sort of maybe giving up some of what you've added by putting on the outer layer? I, absolutely. I, I mean, that, that is, a, uh, is a question that is really easy to answer. And, and sure, it is. Uh, the more layers you can put between yourself and the, and the road surface, the better off you're going to be. Uh, the question becomes, when is it enough and when is it too much? I mean, like I say, you, you could you could buy a, uh, a regular size jacket and pants, and then 
buy another uh, extra large jacket and pants to go over them. But then, you know, your mobility, your uh, range of motion, and, and that's all going to be impaired. And, and so are you safer or not? Well, I would say yeah, probably not, really, because what you're going to end up doing is getting fatigued or overheated. Um, that, that's the point. See, when it, when is when is uh, when is too much? When is when are layers and how many layers beneficial or not? And and somewhere along the line, you just have to understand. Look, here's here's the thing I I've gotten in the habit of saying. Uh, Motorcycling is is a very unforgiving activity, um, and so it it behooves you or anyone else to be the best that they can be at what they do, and that is riding motorcycles. You need to stay on two wheels. You can't throw yourself on the ground and expect to come out scot free. Um, and and I've I've tried to make that a uh, a habit in, in, in my writing career. So the, the problem becomes is that we are involved in an activity that is, let's face it, it's dangerous. And, and tell me what is safe about hanging out in the breeze at 70 or 80 miles an hour with no restraint system, no airbags, no crush zone. And, <laughs> and, and these, a ton and a half, two ton and, and, and multi-ton, you know, even, uh, uh, 40, uh, um, uh, 80,000 pound vehicles, uh, running around beside you and behind you and in front of you. And, and, and you're trying to avoid the, the whole mix of things. So it, it's, it's not, uh, motorcycling is not safe. I, and I hope no one thinks it is no, no matter what you have on. Well, I, I think the confusion is often when we talk about, you know, safety gear. I mean, if you think of, I don't know, say somebody does a roofing, they'll wear a harness and they'll wear a safety strap that's fastened down to something. If they fall off, that safety yeah. strap will hold them. They could jump off the building to test it and that safety strap's going to hold them. You know, they might bump against the building or whatever, but they know that strap is going to hold them. The difference here is it's like, it's like someone working at the edge of a volcano and somebody offering them a, giving them a jacket and saying, well, you have to wear this as a safety gear. And you say, well, what happens if it erupts? Like, is this going to save me? Well, no, not really. But I mean, it's the <laughs> better than nothing at this point. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's yeah. almost what it's like. Oh, there's, there's no question. And, uh, that's why I find your, your subject interesting because, um, we all have our own answers and we're, look, we're all willing to accept risk. If we weren't willing to accept risk, we wouldn't be riding motorcycles. Uh, but at that point you need to decide, you know, how much risk are you willing to, uh, to take? And, 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 and if, uh, if you want to wear long pants under uh, a riding suit or, or uh, uh, another set of padding underneath the riding suit, so be it. But like I say, it's, it's, I think it's up to each individual to determine what they want to do with it. It's certainly not one of those things that you can just come out with a blanket statement and say this is what it ought to be. Well, I mentioned about people wearing shorts. It's a real common one that you hear underneath it. I've heard other people say with textiles, one of the problems with them, and the, obviously the reason that you're saying leather is is the top of the heap, is that um, the textiles can heat up. And I've heard people talk about them melting under the you know the, the abrasion from the heat from the abrasion and melting against your skin. 
So why not just wear jeans with some padding strapped on over top and then just take the padding off when you get where you're going? Well, you could do that. I, there's no problem with that at all. Do you think that offers you the same protection as the outer layer that we would buy our normal riding pants? No, I don't think so. I, it, jeans is is, um, is a poor excuse for, um, and I hate to use the word, but safety gear. Um, you know, it, it, it has even less tolerance to, to being drug on the ground than, than textile does. So I guess really to get a, a real idea of how much protection we're getting from it, you'd almost have to run a test with a pair of jeans and compare it to the test run on the textiles and say how much added protection are, are you giving up? I mean, because you like you said, it absolutely lessens your protection. Absolutely. The question is, is it worth it to wear the heavy jeans and sweat in the summertime underneath your, your heavy riding pants? Or are you better off just to, you know, depend on whatever you're going to get out of the pants? Well, see what you're what you're doing in a case like that is is just um, creating other issues. Um, it, so, is it is it better to be as cool as possible in the hot summer? Let's say you're you're living in Vegas or Palm Springs, or is it better is it better to be hotter and sweat a lot and you know, so what's what's that do to your concentration? What's that do to your your ability to make decisions quickly and accurately? And um, so you, you you have all these other factors. It's just like um, it's just like um, well, let's say in manufacturing, uh, somebody designs a product and uh, they find out that well, gee, this, this piece here is a little weak. We need to stiffen it up. So, all right, we'll stiffen it up. But stiffening that up then creates other problems for other components of the, of the system down the road uh, that you may not have thought about initially. So, you know, you can, um, uh, you can, stay, you can stay warm, you can stay hot, uh, you can sweat a lot and lose your focus, or you can be cooler and um, keep your focus, but not have as much protection if you decide to throw yourself on the ground or you find yourself thrown on the ground. Frankly, for me, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I, I, don't, um, I don't wear jeans underneath. Uh, my gear, I like to have more form-fitting gear, so it's more unlikely that the, the padding will uh, be pushed out of the way if you do... Uh, find yourself uh, skittering along the ground. Um, but what I do is I like wearing uh, compression base layers to keep me cool in the summer and then a little heavier to keep me warmer in the winter. And um, that, uh, again, look, if you want to talk about crash speeds, and and, and, and I understand that the faster you go, the the more of that textile uh, gear is going to heat up and the uh, more likely it is to burn your skin or wear right through. But I think the, the point is that you have to make concessions somewhere along the line for everything. And you have to understand that we are, as human beings, quite fragile. You know, I, I see these, these movies where people get beat up and smashed and Hit over their head, and, and in ten minutes later, they're raring and ready to go again. That's not real life. Um, you get thumped on the ground and and uh, 
flicked around like a like a rag doll, and and you you're going to be hurting. So it's 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 not just the the sliding; it's the tumbling as well that goes into it. And that's one of the reasons you you hope you have a helmet on, a decent helmet on, and you have a good padding to keep all the uh, the impact points rather uh, safe. So it's a very personal choice on on what people wear. Well, let me put it to you this way. Somebody comes to one of your classes at Street Masters and they say, okay, Walt, I want to get a pair of pants, want to get a you know some decent protection. What do you tell them? You you need to look for something that, one, fits. And, and I think snugly because, again, the problem with too loose a fit, then it's not going to protect you if you do get off the bike because it's going to twist and turn and pads on the knee are going to move, the pads on the elbow are going to move, the pads on the shoulders are going to move, and and uh, and hips as well. So, you know, what kind of protection are you going to get if you get too loose a fitting garment? Um, and so I, I do believe in having things fit snugly. Um, but again, you know, I'll point out to you that, that if you really want the best protection you can buy, it's a leather suit, leather jacket, leather pants. And, of course, the reason everybody goes to textile away from leather is because it uh, gives you more freedom as far as uh, dealing with temperature and, and all of that sort well, of thing. I, I, yes, I'd say versatility. It gives you more versatility. Right. They're lighter. Uh, they're lighter. They're uh, uh, easier to get in and out of, uh, the textile is. Um but again, if we're talking about protection is is uh, paramount, then leather is your your choice, bar none. I just want to go back to what you were saying there about um, you know if if your jacket isn't your pants aren't fitting tight and your pads are moving around. That, that is the problem with having uh, the pads sewn into or stuck into the jacket and the pants. They need to have, like you said, either be tight or have some way to tighten those that padding, that protective padding, to keep it in place. Because a lot of these jackets, as you mentioned, they're they're so baggy, it just it just twists around. If you think about it, it doesn't take much to twist a pad off of you. And and the pad sticking out also is leverage, so it's caught on the road or caught on whatever and, and rolls away from you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've seen some of these, uh, uh, this gear that uh, goes on under your, your riding gear uh, that's um, kind of snug fitting and and almost like compression uh, layer that the pads are built into it. And I, I often wonder how those work out. Um, but they, you know, I, I can see a downside to them also because they're, uh, uh, you can't just take them off when you get to where you're going. You're talking about the, the protective gear that straps onto you? Well, sure. Uh, something like that. But I, I've seen complete suits that are under gear that'll have uh, knee cups, molded in or made into the, the, the pant as well. Um, and, and it becomes, it's one unit in, as opposed to having, um, uh, a pad inside a pocket inside the, the textile pant or jacket. I, I think the one that comes to my mind is, is Knox, but don't, don't hold me to that. I don't recall exactly. I think the important thing is to, Think about wearing something better than jeans. Think about wearing something better than tennis shoes. Um, that's one of my pet peeves is when I see people with – I have a guy that, that passes me 
from time to time on my way to uh, the office in the morning. And I, I just call call him the uh, red pajama pants guy because every time I see him, he's got real floppy red pants on. They're always red. And they're always flopping, uh, flapping around in the breeze. And um, they'll do nothing for you. You know, spend a hundred bucks, spend 150 bucks and get something that'll at least give you some protection uh, from, if nothing else, the initial impact. And uh, from there, things start slowing down. But the, the first one is always going to be the, the, the hardest and toughest. But um, I, I really am a, a believer in uh, all the gear all the time. Uh, I always wear it and uh, have for decades. And uh, to me, it's just part of getting ready to go. Um, and if you, if you look at gear as, um, uh, a convenience instead of something that you have to wear for protection, I think you have a little different mindset and, and I look at it as convenience in that, well, you know, if I just wore my jeans or a pair of slacks, then they're getting all grimy and dirty and whatnot. But instead I have motorcycle gear that is made to get like that. <laughs> and, and, you know, you wash them every few weeks and they're, they're fine. And, you know, and that's why, that's why black's one of the favorite colors because it doesn't show the dirt. But, um, but so I get to the office in the morning and I take the pants off and I, uh, my riding pants off and I can put a pair of jeans on or a pair of slacks on, depending on what kind of day it's going to be at the office. And, uh, uh, it's, it's all good. Um, uh, always wear boots, but, uh, protection gear, protective gear isn't, isn't just, uh, style and fashion. It's, it's, it is made for a reason. And, um, you know, you're absolutely right about the, uh, not any standards and there's, there has been some, there have been some tests done. Um, and I, and I can't recall who, who did them or what the results were, but I, I, I was trying to look that up before you and I talked, uh, where they, they use some anthropomorphic dummies and, and suited them up in gear and, and pushed them out of back of a pickup and things like that to see how, uh, how they perform at given speeds. And, um, I'll, I'll have to look that up and maybe if I, we have an opportunity, I'll get back to you later on that if I can find it. Um, but I, I just find it, it interesting that, you know, we have to have a standard for this and a standard for that but uh, and other things, but we have no real standard for the protection that uh, a garment gives you. And they change so often from year to year, which changes the stitching and the way they're made. Um, yep. Yeah, it, it makes it very difficult. You really, I mean, you really don't know what you're buying as, as far as protective gear goes without any sort of standards. Well, I, I, I think the the best you could do is go with a, a name brand, although guess what? It's, it's no guarantee because, uh, they, their stuff is made in Pakistan or Vietnam or, um, and, and again, if there's not a standard, what are you getting? Mm. Well, it won't matter where it's made. I mean, you, you know, you can get things that are made cheap in, in China, for instance, or you can make things that are really high end. Apple is a, is a prime example. Um, sure. But it's a matter of what the requirements are, what parameters that they're they're set to under manufacturing. 
And, you know, if there aren't any industry-wide, are the manufacturers making it for style? Are they making it for protection? Or are they making it to look like it's stylish and look like it's protective? It's, it's very difficult to know. So, yeah, this is one where you... Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes to all of those uh, questions you have. Mm-hmm. Because the European testing has shown that one manufacturer can even make something that is very good, that holds up very well, whereas another one of their products has the seams blowout. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not even a guarantee to go with a manufacturer. Yeah. Well, and that's it. Uh, you know, if, again, if there are no standards, if there are no standards, then you, you don't have to meet any, and therefore, who cares? What What do they care about it? Uh, but you that the best you can do is 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 pick something that is well known and and has a good reputation and i and i think the uh, the point of that is or that that comment is that you you need to shop around so to speak you need to talk to people that are writers you need to talk to people that have fallen off and there's plenty of those out there and uh, find out what they're wearing and find out how well the the product holds up i mean motorcycling isn't that large a uh, a group. And, um, the, the cool thing is that most motorcyclists will love to share things with you and, and everybody else. So you just need to avail yourself of that. Even anonymously, you've got, um, lots of, uh, blogs and, and, and internet sites where they talk about gear and, and talk about protection and, and, oh, gee, I, this happened to me the other day and I was wearing such and such and so and so, and it held up really well. So, you know, that, that it, it, I know it's anecdotal, but um, it, it's, it's certainly better than uh, nothing if, you, if that's what you're starting from. So um, avail yourself of people that have been that route and uh, see what they have to say about it. Uh, you know, just, just as a side note here, the, the, the stuff I, I wear and I, what I wear under my ear is, is – um, something called Tesla and it's, it's just, it's a compression layer. It's a base layer and they're a little heavier for winter and a little lighter for summer. And they even have a uh, micro fleece, uh, more microfiber for even warmer stuff. Um, and I've had it, golly, I've worn some of this stuff for years and it's still holding up quite well. And, and I ride almost every day and, um, and I'm, I'm wearing, a Tesla almost every day and for years, and it's just, it's amazing how well they work. Tesla is in the car manufacturer? No, it's not. It's Tesla is in, it's, it comes from Vietnam. <laughs> and and it costs between, I don't know, 10 and 20 bucks, uh, depending on whether you want the heavy-duty stuff or the light stuff. And uh, I've, uh, I've worn it for years now, and I'm probably about, I'm guessing, five to eight years now. And I'm just, uh, I'm happy with it. But again, it's not going to solve or um, handle any impact, but what it, uh, but I think one of the things it will do, and I, I found this is true with leathers. I, I actually got it to wear under my, my racing leathers. This is the one thing with, with le- uh, leather, particularly the ones that aren't, uh, lined and the Harley leathers that I rode with when I was riding for Harley Davidson, were not lined because they wanted them as tight as they could be. So they didn't flutter around and, and create drag. Uh, but I, I ended up having a, a get off. Uh, this was actually at the Houston Astrodome. I got knocked down there in a, in a multi-vehicle crash. And I got, I got a huge area of my, my skin where it was just 
raw. And it was from my skin sliding against the online leather. Um, so ever since uh, then, I've been wearing something between my leather, the, the leather suit and my body. So to sort of wrap things up as far as the, the, the thought process that we've been working through here, what you are doing is you get a good outer layer, the best you can get, the best fitting that you can get, and the inner layers, you're not worried so much about them adding to protection, but you're using them to regulate your temperature to make you more alert and, and keep you riding well. Well, absolutely. absolutely. And I think that's that's a good way to, to, to put it. Um, you know, like I said, you can keep adding more and more and more and more stuff, but then all you're going to do is get warmer and warmer and warmer. And that may be good if it's wintertime, but in the summertime, it's just going to take your focus away and, and, and uh, you're going to lose moisture. And it's just going to be a, a bad scene as far as being able to make decisions and things like that if you uh, actually do wear too much and get too hot. I've been speaking with Walt Fulton from Street Masters Motorcycle Workshops. You can find out more about Walt and Street Masters at their website, www.streetmasters.info. And of course, that link, as always, will be in the show notes for this episode. take a two-minute break, and then we're going to be right back with the death of the KLR650. Stay with us. Well, Overland Expo is the biggest overlanding event you'll ever get a chance to attend, and it's almost here, November 9 to 11, 2018, in Asheville, North Carolina, with over 175 specialized classes. They've got hundreds of experts, presentations, vendors' booth. Uh, camping, riding instruction. There's so many courses and classes that you can sign up for um, when you get your pass here. And there's going to be loads of travelers showcasing their setups, answering questions. It is the overlanding event. But listen, you need to buy your tickets online before the show, and we're getting really close here. So the website is www.overlandexpo.com. You're going to see two uh, icons there at the start with pictures. One's going to say west, one's going to say east. You're going to click on the east one. That will take you to the page where you can get your ticket. Again, Asheville, North Carolina, November 9 to 11th, 2018. And you got to get your tickets. You got to buy them online. That You can't buy them at the gate. Now, if you really can't make this one, the next one's going to be in 2019 in May, but that's Overland Expo West, the other side of the country. So do your best to get to East. Drop by their website again and buy your ticket online, www.overlandexpo.com. And don't forget, anytime you're dealing with them, mention Adventure Rider Radio. Tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And the other one I want to mention to you is, of course, IMS products. IMS is the maker of those amazing foot pegs that you'll see people riding on, at least the people who know better, because when you buy a foot peg, you want a foot peg that not only is designed correctly, but manufactured correctly. And then on top of that, you want a company that's going to stand behind it. And that's what IMS does. IMS has a lifetime warranty on all their foot pegs. 
I can't think of anything else you're going to buy for your motorcycle that comes with a lifetime warranty, in particular, something that you're going to end up abusing so heavily as a foot peg. But they do it because they know how to make parts, because that's what they do. They've been doing that since 1976 for racers. And I mean, there's just loads of racers running on IMS parts. There's a full line of foot pegs for you to check out at their website, www.imsproducts.com. Um, look at the ADV1 and the ADV2 if you're doing maybe a little bit of back roads or fire roads and mostly pavement. Um, look at the rally pegs if you're looking at something that's will maybe take you into a little bit rougher areas where you don't have quite the width of the pegs. Drop by their website, check it out, and anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, imsproducts.com. I'm Zachary Kerlick from New Brunswick, Canada, and I write about motorcycles for Canada Moto Guide, for Inside Motorcycles, and uh, occasionally for other print magazines. Zach, great to have you back on the show. Great to be back on here. Last time we talked about the death of the Thumper, the single-cylinder motorcycle, and you were talking about, well, we were discussing really an article that you wrote and a concept that you were, you were sort of tabling at the time that uh, the single cylinders were destined for uh, the history books, I guess. And you had a, a lot of reasons behind that. But today we're talking about the possible death of the KLR650, the Kawasaki KLR650. Now, there's been a rumor circulating for a month or so, I guess, that, that Kawasaki is or has canceled the KLR. And the origin of that letter seems to, um, or the origin of, the, of that rumor rather, seems to go back to a letter that has surfaced on the internet, apparently um, sent to the dealers. And it's kind of a fuzzy letter. It, it sort of reminds me of the picture of Bigfoot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the, the Bigfoot standing at the logs. You know the one I'm talking about. I know the one you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, that fuzzy photo of, of Sasquatch, you know, stepping over a log or something, and, and it seems that every photo of Sasquatch is fuzzy. Well, ironically, the photo of this letter is also fuzzy, but it's legible, and a lot of it is redacted in this um, very brilliant uh, green, but um, the one part that isn't says this. It says, factory to dealer incentives will remain strong to ensure we keep the retail momentum going. There is one exception to this. The KLR650 model year 2018 will be the final year for this iconic motorcycle. On October 1st, 2018, we will discontinue all incentives for the KLR650s. Why, it says, dealer inventory is low and KMC has a small supply of 2018s available for dealer orders. And then it goes on to talk about the MSRP and, and what a great value. It says, we are sorry for this news, but thought it's best to let you know in advance. Did you see the letter? What do you make of it? Yes, I, I did see the letter. Um, what did I make of it? It's hard to say. Uh, it would be something easy for somebody to fake something like that. We've certainly seen fake letters like this before circulated around. But having said that, it's very curious that there hasn't really been an official comeback against it from Kawasaki. And I believe at the AIM show in the States last weekend, I don't believe there was a 2019 Kawasaki KLR650 on display. 
there's no 2019 KLR650 on the American or the Canadian websites for Kawasaki. And if there was uh, such a model, you would expect to find it there because I would guess that Canada uh, and America are the two biggest markets for that motorcycle. Well, and Kawasaki unveiled new motorcycles at the Ames show. And now the, now there is another report from someone who was supposedly at the Ames show. And they said that the dealers had a meeting with Kawasaki before the show started. And it was announced to them that they would no longer be producing the KLR. And that's it. Apparently afterwards, this person uh, inquired with a, uh, someone from Kawasaki, it seems all very vague, and they confirmed that they'll no longer be selling it and they wouldn't confirm anything about a new bike or talk about new models. Now, those new models that they unveiled are on the website. If you go to the website right now, at least it is right now today, and this is October 16th, if you go to the website, kawasaki.com, the first page that comes up, and it's only there for a few seconds, splashes some new models up there that were introduced at the AIM show, but behind them, are four other models with covers over them. And it says on it the logo for the Milan show, or the, or the acronym for the Milan show. You know, one could look at this and think that, are there more motorcycles, hence a replacement for the KLR, going to show up at that show? It's hard to guess. Uh, typically, the Japanese manufacturers are much more closed-lipped than the Europeans. And you don't necessarily know when something's coming. Now, uh, the Yamaha 700 uh, Tenere is a good example of, of one that has got a lot of publicity. We know for sure that we're going to see this bike at EICMA. But for a lot of the time, especially from Kawasaki and Honda, uh, if there is a bike coming, they don't necessarily tell us all about it. But even if they do introduce four new motorcycles at EICMA, and they discontinue the KLR650. I don't think there's necessarily a hole in Kawasaki's lineup, because in my opinion, the KLR650 was often used as a dual sport. Well, what it really was was a low-priced adventure bike. And even if they discontinued the KLR650 today, they still have a low-priced adventure bike in their lineup with the Versus X300, which very well could be getting a boost to 400 cc's with the same engine as in the new Ninja 400. That would make total sense to me. Well, let's look at the KLR before we dig any further into this and start to talk about its origin, its history, because it's been around for a long time. I mean, it's been around for, well, over 30 years. I think it's like 31, 32 years, depends on how you add it up, I guess. It came out in 1987. It's only had a couple of revisions, three, three, four revisions, something like that, with a 2008 revision being the biggest. Where you saw the body change and some suspension changes and things like that. What is it about the KLR that's made it so popular for all those years? I think it was introduced, it was the right bike at the right time. It was something you could take down to Panama from Calgary fairly easily without making a lot of changes to it, and it didn't cost a lot of money. It didn't cost a lot of money. It came with a, a large gas tank, which at least it did for North America. I know um, in the UK, uh, I don't know which models had the smaller gas tank, but there was certainly some, if not all models, with a smaller gas tank. Um, but for North America, it had the large gas tank. I mean, it had some suspension travel to it. It had the capability of being off-road. I mean, it's really great at nothing, but it's sort of good at a lot of things um, as far as, you know, when it comes to any sort of adventure riding. And when it was introduced as well, its competition was nowhere near as street friendly. You had uh, Honda had its 
I don't know if it would have been a 650 or 600 back then, but it was basically a dirt bike on steroids. Yamaha's similar 600 class thumper, that was a dirt bike on steroids. And so was Suzuki's. They were mostly kickstart, uh, unpleasant to ride long distances, no real body work to speak of. So uh, Kawasaki had a pretty big chunk of that market if you wanted a low-cost, big-bore dual sport and you wanted to ride it a long way, it was the bike to take. Now, by the time the 90s came around, Yamaha basically dropped out of the game in North America, um, and Suzuki came out with the DR650, which, again, in many ways uh, had, had lower weight, maybe a bit more power, certainly better suspension than the KLR650, but it, it didn't have the great big gas tank. It didn't have all the bodywork. So the KLR out of the box was a very good low-cost adventure machine for many North Americans. Yeah, no doubt the other bikes are great bikes as well. I mean, the Honda, the XR650, great bike, very reliable. DR650 is the same thing. But there's something about the KLR that caught on better than all of them. And I propose that it's that gas tank right out of the gate when you go pick up the bike, pretty much ready to go for adventure. I mean, I would think that gas tank would have been the deciding factor. It certainly helped. Um, I think just having that Maybe five, six-year head start was a huge advantage to Kawasaki as well. Uh, I believe it was Napoleon or one of those uh, European military geniuses who said that quantity is a quality to all to itself. So if you want to go buy an adventure bike or a dual sport and you're not quite sure what you want to buy and all your friends have KLRs, well, you'll probably go look at a KLR too, even if there's something else on the market. So that certainly helped. And it certainly, I mean, it, it did the job. Uh, if you go through... The North American uh, big names in adventure motorcycling, a lot of them got their start in a KLR, and some of them never moved away from it. So there were these well-known adventurers out there, and that was the bike they chose. Well, going on the assumption that they are going to replace the KLR 650, that, it, that it, the production has stopped at this point, if that's the case, why do you think they decided to do it now? I mean, 30 years in, that's been a long time. And, and by the way, I don't think anyone can say they didn't see the writing on the wall. This is a carbureted motorcycle we're talking about that seems to have defied aging where all the other motorcycles have went to, or most of the motorcycles have went to fuel injection and just more modern um, build. The KLR is still that old school. I think it's just a, a case of the industry starting to move away from that style of motorcycle. I think a lot of uh, new entry-level riders are just as interested, if not more interested, in a bike like the Versix X300. And I think across the industry, I mean, I mean, Honda, I don't believe, has brought its XR650L into Canada for two years. I think it may still be available in the U.S. But obviously, demand has dropped if it's not been in Canada for a couple of years. And look, overseas in Europe, I can't imagine that KLR650 meets emission standards over there. So if less and less people are out there looking to buy it, well, uh, eventually, especially if it doesn't meet emission standards, it's time to get rid of it. Um, but it certainly was a, a mainstay of their lineup over here for many, many years. And the aftermarket certainly rose to that occasion too, because it was when when it was in its heyday in the early 2000s, in the 90s, you could buy absolutely anything you wanted for a KLR 650. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, that was the heyday of motorcycle sales, I guess you could say as well, where we had that big bump in sales that seemed to go up into the, the 2000s and crash down with the 2008 financial crisis. So is, if the KLR is, is dead and, and it's done, could it be part in, in what we talked about before? Because you talked about the death of the thumpers, the death of that single cylinder engine. What, what were some of the points that you were making there? Uh, well, I think the single cylinder engines, uh, the big ones, are all on the way out for a few different reasons. Um, one is because they're not used in multiple models of motorcycles anymore. Uh, the manufacturers are all about using the same engine across a wide range of vehicles to save money and time in manufacturing. It's also true that big pistons, when they heat up, tend to deform more and the rings deform more, which causes more oil blow-by, which increases your motorcycle's emissions. And uh, in today's world, that's a no-no. So you're seeing them uh, dropped more and more from the lineup over that. You can get around that. Uh, if you look at Husqvarna and KTM, they do still produce big bore single cylinder motorcycles, but then they have to bolt on a whole bunch of uh, extra equipment under the exhaust to clean the emissions from the exhaust or else run them more highly tuned. So it gets to be a case of um, it, there's less demand for them, I believe, all the time. Um, and it's hard to keep them on the road. It's just uh, the industry is just starting to move on to other things. I mean, uh, we're not running dual shock suspension anymore. We're not uh, we're not using incandescent bulbs in most modern motorcycles. And I think single cylinder engines, at least the big ones, are on their way out. I think there's still space in the industry for the small capacity single cylinder engines. I don't see them going anywhere in the next few years. But I think the big ones are just about done. Well, it does kind of make you wonder, too, if competition hasn't been part of it, because, you know, it wasn't just a few years ago that there didn't seem to be a lot in offerings for us in that range. And nowadays, I mean, there's just, there's tons, there's loads of bikes above and below that in CCs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Kawasaki, the, the KLR650 was kind of on its own when it, when it came out in that class. It was the way it offered. But now, even in its own lineup, they have the Versus X300, which is probably, for a lot of people, easier to ride. Um, and you've got Suzuki has a V-Strom. they got the DR650. Uh, Honda's got the CB500X. And some of those bikes are a little more street-friendly than the KLR, but they're still roughly marketed to the same sort of customer who wants the same sort of thing. So there's quite a bit to choose from. Um, and I think we're going to see uh, even more competition in that 650 to 700 class in the next few weeks because we're going to see the new Yamaha 700 unveiled at ICMA, uh, which we've already really seen, I guess, but um, it'll be there in its final form. And we'll probably see the KTM 790 uh, Adventure come out as well, and maybe even a 390 Adventure. So the competition continues to get tougher and tougher. BMW has got that new G310GS. So there's a pinch from both ends of the spectrum. Well, let's imagine that the KLR650 is done as we know it, and they're going to come out with some sort of replacement. What would you see as the replacement? I suspect it would be a parallel twin. It would probably be um, a Versus X400. That would be my first guess. Uh, we could see a more rugged version of the Versus 650 
but I don't think that's going to happen. I would say we will see uh, um, uh, um, version of the current versus X model. It's just got the 400 CC engine out of the Ninja 400. Um, it's possible we would see another single cylinder, but if we did, I would bet it would look a lot more like the Honda CRF 450L than it would look like the current KLR model. That's what the market wants now. If they want a single cylinder, they want it to be more of a hot rod, uh, like the CRF 450L. Um, people still like the KLR. There's still buyers out there for that bike, but a lot of those buyers still have their old KLR, and they're not replacing it anytime soon. But a 300 and a 400, they're so close. And the other thing is, is I'm wondering here, are they going to come out with a big adventure bike? I mean, Kawasaki's not there for a big adventure bike. Uh, that's certainly possible, although I can't see any of their existing platforms fitting well into a, a big adventure bike. I think if we see a Versus 400, I think we'll see the Versus 300 will be discontinued. It's been in the lineup now for a couple of seasons, um, and Kawasaki is probably going to bring out a Z400 naked bike at ICMA. So if they're already making a Ninja 400 and a Z400, why would you still make uh, a versus 300, it would make much more sense to make a versus 400. And I think the market would be much more excited about that because it would be probably more powerful than the other motorcycles available in that class right now. You know, it's kind of interesting, the whole thing that's happening here. You know, we get these rumors that Kawasaki's dropped the motorcycle. And they're no longer going to make the KLR. No one's confirming or denying anything at all. It seems like the writing's on the wall that, yes, this is really happening. They're not saying anything. I love it. <laughs> to me, it, the whole suspense is what gets people talking. And, of course, has us talking today. And uh, sort of drives interest, I think, in the motorcycle industry. I mean, could this not attract people just pulling a little stunt like this? Oh, I certainly think it's got people's attention. It's it's got my attention, and and it's good on them if they've managed to keep a new bike a secret this long. It's very hard to do these days because everywhere you go, there's a smartphone waiting to take a picture of your secret prototype. Mm, yeah, and we we see it all the time now. I mean, look at the the leak of the R1250 GS platform. I don't think that was supposed to get out there on the internet as early as it did. So if there is a new KLR replacement that's been kept secret this long more power to kawasaki will you be sad to see it go <laughs> i've been a dr650 man for about <laughs> eight years so it's not going to hurt my feelings <laughs> zach great to talk to you again thank you very much thanks for the call and that was motorcycle journalist zach Kerlick from st john new brunswick in canada you want to find out more about what Zach does? Drop by Canada Moto Guide. It's a great website to have a look at motorcycle stuff. CanadaMotoGuide.com. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, 
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works so hard in the background and you hardly ever hear. That is, unless you listen to the other podcast that we do, or one of the other ones, called Beyond a Shadow. That's where you actually hear her voice. You can find that on our website as well. Anyway, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. But before you do, I just want to remind you that we are set up for patrons. So if you're interested in helping support the show, it is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work out. Um, with a, a podcast, you really need that listener support. Of course, the more we get, the less we have to worry about finding other ways to make the show work. So drop by the website, check it out, click on the support button. We'd love it if you would. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks. See you next week. This is Jonathan Hansen from the Overland Expo, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 